0: Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content. From inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, Listen and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Peter Helly talk about teaching in the health sciences. He discusses topics such as how he has seen his role as an educator evolve, the integration of AI in education, and the importance of integrating the learner's context when
1: teaching a course. We hope you enjoy.
0: Welcome, Peter It's so nice to have you here on our podcast today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: So I'm kind of chuckling inwardly as I think about my first question because it's going to be to ask you to introduce yourself. And I'm thinking, you know, I should know you by now. We've been colleagues in the School of Nursing for many years. And yet I know that I'm going to learn a bit more about you even through our podcast today. So if you could introduce yourself to the listeners. That would
1: be great. Excellent, yes. Um, Well, I'm a teaching professor with the School of Nursing, McMaster University, uh, and I've been in this teaching role for the past 12 years. I teach several courses in the undergraduate BSCM programs, including first-year human anatomy and physiology, second-year pathophysiology, uh, second-year statistics, and accelerated pathophysiology. Uh, for the past decade, I've also been teaching at the graduate level in the Ontario uh, Primary Healthcare Nurse Practitioner Program, in particular as a course professor for pathophysiology. At the McMaster School of Nursing, I'm part of a collaborative team of science instructors that deliver core science courses to all learners in the three BSCN streams. So that's our direct entry program, accelerated program, and bridging programs. As a collaborative team, we share our experiences in teaching and consult with each other on pedagogy, best practices, use of technology in the classroom, uh, learner challenges, and of course, learner supports. We also collaborate to develop uniform course policies and use each other as a sounding board when considering course revisions and enhancements to support the undergraduate nursing curriculum. In addition, I'm also a member of an undergraduate AMP consortium that collaborates to provide AMP education to undergraduate students in several programs, including nursing, midwifery, bachelor of health sciences, engineering, and iBiomed. Uh, we consult on developing lecture content, uh, hands-on anatomy lab exercises, and evaluation measures. We also consult on how best to use technology in the classroom to facilitate learning, both face-to-face and remotely, and to facilitate practice testing and to assess students.
0: Wow, I'm overwhelmed hearing the summary of all the different courses that you teach, as well as super impressed with the various collaborations that you've developed and maintained over the years. I'm familiar with your within School of Nursing collaborations with the other science team faculty. And also I see your name frequently on the collaborations for the anatomy and physiology team across the FHS as you deliver your AMP courses. So I think about the many years of experience you've had as a teacher and educator. And I wonder, how have you seen your educator role evolve I imagine that you've encountered a lot of evolution, even in your time here as a teaching professor.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, as a junior faculty member back in 2010, I spent a good amount of time adjusting to my new role as an educator. While I'd previously been a graduate TA for the same undergraduate AMP course, taking on the role of a course instructor was really unfamiliar waters. I had no idea how much of my role as an instructor would turn out to be actually administrative. Um, In higher education, the bulk of the educator's time is spent dealing with emails from students, supervising teaching assistants, uh, consulting with colleagues, and working with academic advisors and accessibility advisors to help support learners. Then the question also comes about, Okay, what about educational technology developments? Right as we experience this educational role. Well, as an educator within the School of Nursing, I've seen a dramatic evolution in the accessibility and usability of technology and its widespread adoption by students and instructors alike uh, for the purposes of teaching and learning. I've seen technology progress from simply being a means to deliver course material and promote communication between students and faculty to being a means to increase accessibility, promote collaboration, enhance student engagement, etc. One of the biggest challenges I perceive for learners these days is the massive amount of information that they have available at their fingertips. Not all that information is accurate or relevant. Uh, for learners, the challenge becomes sifting through that information, being able to pull out the key concepts or ideas, understanding what the key messages are, and being able to distinguish from what is nice to know to what is need to know, particularly when it comes to evaluations. Now embedded in this is the ability to separate fact from opinion and appreciate that our knowledge and understanding, particularly in the health sciences, is constantly evolving. As an educator, I've always strived to highlight the importance of being able to summarize a slide, chapter, or lesson into one or two sentences that capture the key messages from that material. Um, In our level one AMP course, for example, I modeled this for the students by providing an open editable document that summarizes some of the key terms and concepts that I pulled from the lectures. This document gets the ball rolling for students and provides them with a scaffold to generate their own personalized notes to aid in their learning and understanding. I've also noticed that students nowadays have an unlimited assortment of online platforms that they can share information and collaborate with peers. So the challenge for instructors has been keeping up with these advancements in information sharing and collaboration, while maintaining the integrity of assignments uh, tests and exams, sometimes it kind of feels like an arms race. Take, for example, the recent developments in the evolution of uh, Chat GPT.
0: Oh, yes. I was going to ask you about this. I'm glad you're bringing it up.
1: I'm just going to bring it up. I'm not <laughs> going to talk much more about it, though. So, Chat GTP is just one example of a generative artificial intelligence platform that users can use to generate novel papers on any topic imaginable with limited prompts from them, the user. But again, as I like to say, that's a discussion for another day. That's a whole can of worms that we need time to discuss.
0: Definitely.
1: (laughs) Now, that being said, I have used technology to provide students with immediate feedback on things like practice quizzes, tests, and exams. I find immediate feedback really helps learners to identify their gaps in knowledge and better target their study efforts to bridge those gaps in a timely fashion. I recently actually collaborated with faculty in the McMaster Program for Education Anatomy to evaluate the use of artificial intelligence using decision trees to mark practice tests that have a short answer component. What's really cool is the accuracy of that decision tree process to mark those open-ended questions was extremely high and was nimble enough to accept minor spelling errors in student responses. Oh, wow. Yep. So now using AI, this allowed us to provide students with immediate feedback while reducing the need for people resources to mark these open-ended responses. So classically, we would have had a team of TAs or instructors marking these and requiring maybe a week or so to get the responses back to students. Of course, the next logical step is to have generative AI create novel test questions. For the purposes of enhancing student learning assessment and evaluation, so a bank of questions that can be marked in a timely fashion and an accurate fashion by machines. Now on another topic i've also adopted uh, technology to enhance student engagement in the classroom and to increase the accessibility of course materials for learners. Um, My colleagues and I were very early adopters of classroom response systems like iClicker and Top Hat, which we use to increase student engagement and to gauge the level of understanding of key concepts in real time, all in a risk free manner. Now evidence from course surveys indicates that students really value those elements. Now over the years we have adapted these systems to promote collaboration during class discussions. For example generating uh, team-based learning exercises that are predicated on problem-based learning model uh, to help students identify gaps in their learning for example in class review sessions prior to tests and exams and of course to adapt it for evaluation we also adapted technology to support student accessibility so, for example, we record live lectures and make the captioned videos available for students to review at their leisure. In some courses, we've produced online learning modules with varying levels of interactivity to allow students to learn at their own pace outside the classroom. The latter has allowed us to really change our approach to teaching and learning by enabling us to use a flipped classroom approach. And that approach allows us to use the class time to engage in more active learning strategies such as problem solving and knowledge application as opposed to the classical didactic knowledge delivery format that we classically used in lecture and class. Yeah. Um, It's important to understand though when adopting technology for teaching and learning purposes that it should be done in a manner that's uh, mindful, evidence informed, supports learning outcomes and doesn't adversely affect uh, you know, learner cognitive load. We also have to be mindful that technology may not always be used by learners as the educators may have intended um, or the learners may not use that technology actually to its full benefit. So, for example, I've observed how uh, students tend to type verbatim what their professor is saying during a lecture to generate voluminous notes that are quite detailed, right? Unfortunately, it's been shown that this method of transcribing notes uh, does not generate a deep understanding of the subject matter. And there's little like cognitive effort put into summarizing the information and considering its connection to concepts and ideas that were previously explored or how these concepts and ideas can be applied in the real world. So there's a lot of good educational evidence about that.
0: Yeah, and I actually heard one of your other A and P colleagues share that same example of how learners are taking voluminous notes, mm-hmm. typing things out word for word, and yet that's not—they're finding that that is not the most effective way for learners to study the material. So I appreciate that example, and what you're also highlighting is that as education technologies have developed over the decades or in uh, the past decade that you're referring to, you're not taking an antagonistic approach or an approach to technology that is fighting against development of new technologies, but rather you're highlighting how we can embrace the developments and support curriculum change or change the ways that we conduct our teaching to align with or to use these education technology resources, not only to our benefit, but also to the benefit of our learners. Is that is that fair to say?
1: That is fair to say. And in fact, I've incorporated some student feedback to actually include more technological components in some of the things we do in our courses.
0: Oh, cool. And you're actually giving me some ideas, Peter, of the ways that AI can support marking short answer questions. And we we teach a course together where I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we can incorporate some uh, AI supported short answer marking or even AI supported content or question creation as well. So I'll be coming back to you to ask you more about that. Yeah. Very good. The, the focus is on you, so I'm going to turn it back over to you. I wonder, Peter, in the time that you've been here at McMaster teaching in the many courses that you've taught, I imagine that you go through cycles in your energy, in preparing for the next semester, wrapping up the previous semester. So we're recording right now a few months before we're anticipating the episode release. And as you, as I had mentioned earlier to you, we're planning to release this episode at the beginning of the fall term mm. to encourage and perhaps motivate other teachers in our community with the start of the new academic year. So I was wondering, from your perspective, what do you find most energizing about teaching or what do you get inspired by when you anticipate a new academic year?
1: Indeed. Um, So what do I find most enjoyable in my teaching? Um, Well, really sharing those aha moments with learners. Uh, There really isn't anything like it. You can actually see when a learner comes to understand a concept that they've been really struggling with for some time, it literally shines in their eyes. And there's kind of a sense of affirmation there that your efforts in an educator have really not been in vain. (laughs) Sometimes you feel like you're you're that sage on the sage or the guide by the slide, but maybe nobody's listening to you. It's when you get those aha moments that it's like, yes, I've done something, I've made an impact here. Uh, I also enjoy those moments when I feel that I've made a real connection with the learner often through a shared experience of uh, failure and successes. Um, It is normal for learners to experience challenges along their academic journey. What is important is that we help learners to view these challenges as opportunities for learning. Um, it doesn't mean that we won't make the state same mistake again, right? And in fact, it's, it's helpful to share your own experiences, your own failures and challenges that you encountered in undergrad with your students. It helps to kind of normalize that process, but also helps to model what can we do with this? How, how can we shift our perspective and look at it as a golden opportunity for learning as opposed to a full-out failure? Um There's also something to be said about the energy I feel when entering a lecture hall full of hundreds of students.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: It's like being on stage, giving a performance. It's uh, really true that you get back what you put out there. That energy can make the difference between a good lecture and an exceptional or memorable lecture. The trick is getting over that initial, you know, fright or flight response that occurs minutes before and sometimes minutes into that lecture.
0: And do you still get that feeling?
1: Oh yes, there there, there are some days where you're, uh, even though you've prepared as much as you can, right? And you feel like you're ready to go through this lecture and, you know, make it memorable, make it interactive. You still get a little bit of those jitters at the beginning. It, it it's, It's normal. Yeah.
0: And maybe it's a good thing. It gives you that, uh, what we talk about in terms of that optimum stress rate, or you're you're in that optimum stress range where you are enhancing your performance and that stress is not overwhelming your ability to lecture or
1: teach or engage. I mean, what I just learned recently in a workshop is how to channel that energy (laughs) into something useful, productive, and beneficial, right?
0: Oh, well. I'm going to take that image of entering a new classroom for the first time because I I have that feeling too. Whenever I'm going into a new class or starting a new term, that apprehension of what are the learners gonna feel towards me? Am I going to be able to engage them? What are they? What other distractions do they have that I'm going to be competing with? And all of those different thoughts come into that, particularly that first class, but also persist for me throughout the semester. So I I know that you've talked uh, about your development as an educator, and also how you have embraced education technology within your teaching, within your curriculum development, as well as in response to student feedback. So zooming up a bit and looking at it from an even higher level, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the shifting landscape or changing directions that we're encountering in health professions education. And perhaps could you describe any situations that you have navigated or describe your approach to navigating these shifts in education?
1: Okay, so that's that's where I didn't put a lot of thought into things. Mm. <laughs> okay, so one of the things I wanted to talk about, maybe run through, was some observations I've made of our learners, particularly mm-hmm. undergraduate learners coming into our pre-licensure uh, programs. Um, many of them who directly enter from high school. Um, What I and a lot of my other colleagues have noticed is that there is increasing levels of student stress and anxiety and requests for academic um, accommodations. Mm -hmm. So recognizing the need to communicate with these students in a safe and supportive manner, right, to help reduce anxiety, um, I took it upon myself to engage in as much faculty development as possible to understand some of the stressors that impact our learners and how to uh, identify learners that are in distress Mm. and whom to engage to best support our learners that are experiencing mental health or academic challenges. Now, as part of that journey, I took a course through McPherson called Professor Hippo on Campus, which Mm. is designed to provide some information to faculty that need to be informed, right? That want to be mental health positive educators. Um, I also participated in other workshops available that discussed, you know, subjects such as how to employ a trauma-informed approach to teaching, right? So understanding the need to assume that all learners have experienced some level of trauma, it is important that we, as educators, understand that some topics of discussion in the classroom can be triggering for some individuals, As such, we should be mindful of, you know, language that we use to communicate with learners and the examples, scenarios, and analogies we choose for lessons, assignments, and tests. And that's something I've been particularly mindful of just in the last uh, maybe five years. Mm. Taking a lens to exactly, you know, what examples am I using? What kind of language am I using when we are teaching in our classrooms? And how best to create a safe, open, inclusive learning environment? And it's it can't be just one person that does this, one mm-hmm. instructor in a course. It has to be everybody involved in this process, all the way down to the teaching assistants and the students themselves, mm-hmm. right? Um, along these lines, it's also important to consider the increased awareness and need in health professions education for focusing on equity, diversity, and inclusion as well. It's in all facets of education from whom we decide to hire as a faculty to who makes up our learner population, understanding who our learners are. And of course, to what we teach, are we using inclusive examples, right? Mm-hmm. in our healthcare scenarios and problem-based scenarios and problems and so on. And that's where I wrote down in my notes. Complete this idea because I did not complete <laughs> that idea. Yeah, but I can I can tell you personally I have been going through all the examples that I use in my lessons, either flip class or or, or classical didactic lessons, and considering where can we increase the amount of represented uh, representation of all our learners within our learning materials? Because in a lot of classic anatomy textbooks, it tends to be one uh, one type of image that we see for a skin tone, for example, right? Mm -hmm. We don't often see the diversity that is present in our population. And when we consider some of the healthcare scenarios that we have in problem-based learning, there is always room to include diversity there, right? So examples of individuals from different cultures, um, examples of in different individuals experiencing different barriers within healthcare systems, within the education system, right? So on and so forth. And that's about all, as far as I got with my yeah. notes, unfortunately, because it was a it was a really general topic here, right? A really broad. Yeah, definitely. And it was it was something that really required, I guess, a little more time on my end just thinking no. about this. Yeah.
0: Well, no, actually, Peter, what you're describing and particularly as you're talking about trauma informed education and also what it means to enact equity diversity and inclusion principles within our teaching those two points particularly resonated with me because i find that this is also what i'm thinking through more deeply and more carefully as i interact with students And I see it has, very slowly, because I also recognize how difficult changing our own behaviors are and changing our own mindsets. And so when you talk about trauma-informed education, and I think for myself about some examples of how I have not implemented or enacted trauma-informed education well, Those are learning points for me and it comes out in ways that I need to learn how to deliver feedback more effectively and with greater respect and compassion, recognizing trauma-informed practices, or or even to recognize how we aren't being inclusive and Mm -hmm. equitable in the way that we present course content. And so one example is just in the course that we both teach together in the graduate nurse practitioner program, mm-hmm. seeing the cases that we discuss and the examples that I provide in my class, my small group, how there are still more ways that I can demonstrate inclusivity and equity in those discussions. And then bring our group together, our our students together, because then the students know that I'm also open to embracing diverse viewpoints, or that we are including diverse viewpoints within our discussions. So those are some of the ways that what you've described, I I feel like it's been quite comprehensive, has impacted me as a teacher as well. And uh, another thing that has struck me in what you're saying and it connects actually to my last question, is I feel that we've evolved as teachers over the years. And tell me if this is your experience as well. Before, I think when I first started teaching, there was a sense where we were, like you said, the sage on the stage, Mm -hmm. and we had to know our content, and then we had to go and deliver our lecture, this unidirectional information dissemination. And now I'm seeing more and more the ways in which this is a bi-directional conversation, the teaching and learning endeavor or this enterprise. And how I need to factor in where students are at, where they are coming from, as well as the broader context of the student learning experience. Are you finding that as well in your teaching? taking in those learner variables and the learner context when you implement or teach a course.
1: Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and I I encourage that feedback from students and I incorporate it. And in fact, I make points in the years going ahead that to to indicate, you know, when a learner asks, why are we doing this particular exercise? And I'll say, well, this is the exercise we used to do. It wasn't inclusive it it, it actually created a lot of barriers for learners and it wasn't actually meeting what the students perceived to be their needs so what did i do i revised it i took that feedback to heart and i provided a revised activity Uh, one good example would be our assignments for anatomy and physiology they were the classic essay Right. Very scripted topics. And, you know, a prescribed answer that a TA could mark. But I said, you know what, this isn't allowing students to showcase all of their wonderful talents. Some of them are great at using multimedia to generate these fantastic visual presentations, movies, films. Others are great at sculpting models, right, Mm -hmm. and developing something tangible. So what I did was created an open-ended assignment with some prescription of some topic that they have to describe, but it's up to them what sort of project they want to create out of this. It it represented a bit of a challenge for TAs, right, in the marking aspect, Mm -hmm. but that's where I used some of the, you know, some of the examples I've seen in my other courses that I teach, like the NP program and the use of you know more general rubrics, that really helped actually the TAs to assess, were they meeting the, the outcomes for the course? While at the same time, we are getting these marvelous um, productions, submissions from students that are unique, they're creative, they're very engaging, And they actually really get down to, it allows you as the instructor or TA who's doing the assessment of that submission to really get to understand where the learner is at, how they are engaging with the content, what their level of understanding is. And gets you to know a little bit more about that learner. I feel it's really enriching, not just for the student to be able to showcase their talents, but for us as the instructor to get to know our students a little more. Right. That's
0: really cool. And you know, what it highlights, Peter, is that you were ahead of the game in anticipating chat GPT, because if you still had the essay assignment now, well, look at what would be happening. You'd be get, getting all these submissions that are just AI generated rather than this novel way for students to express themselves as well as demonstrate their knowledge of anatomy and physiology. And you're getting to know different facets of who they are in the process.
1: Yes. And again, that was quite vindicating because I did take a, a a recent workshop, you know, just talking about chat at GPT and, you know, some of its weak points, right? And I said, mm-hmm. oh, these so these are these are certain approaches we can use in our teaching and learning to help circumvent. Chat at GPT, right? And I and I realized check mark check mark. Yes, I'm using all of these exactly. in my courses.
0: See there you fantastic? go. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. And I really like how you mentioned as well that through this different assignment or evaluation measure mm-hmm. that the students are asked to submit, you get a sense of who they are as a person, and there is that sense of the learner coming not just as a student of this particular course, but they are bringing their whole selves to the course, and they are revealing parts of themselves as well to you and to the TAs as they engage with the course. That's really cool to me.
1: hmm and it's Ed. cool to me as well. I I, I love it. I, I'm just excited every time that I get these submissions and I have a group to mark. I don't see it as an onerous task anymore. Yes. I'm actually looking forward to what is the new creative thing that this student or this group of students have come up with.
0: Wow. yeah, That's really cool. It, you're giving me some inspiration as well as I think about how we construct our evaluation measures. So thank you for that inspiration and idea. So I have one final question to allow me as well as the listeners to to get to know you better as well. And that is that uh, a few months ago, we were in a meeting together and the facilitator of the meeting asked everyone to share about something that gave them joy in their lives. And when it came to you, Peter, you shared about how one of your family um, activities recently was to hike the Bruce Trail. And after you said that, I thought, oh my goodness, so impressive. I need to have Peter on this podcast and I need to ask him more about hiking the Bruce trail. So can you share with us some highlights of your experience, highlight, uh, hiking the Bruce trail or what prompted that, uh, activity or even just what you feel like you've gained in the process beyond, you know, the obvious of you get to hike the Bruce trail. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yes, the, the obvious uh, health benefits, right <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> that exactly. go along with the hiking, the fresh air, the exercise, the the helping to regulate blood glucose levels. yeah, I could go on about all of <laughs> yeah. that but right. even to mental health though I I would say, I would say that it, it has a huge impact on one's mental health the 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 fact that just being outdoors uh, being able to clear your mind to be able to make connections with, Another individual, because, you know, usually we're not hiking alone, right? Um, so what sparked all of this in the beginning? Well, as with most uh, things that people have recently adopted as, you know, exercises or interests, uh, I would have to say COVID spurred this on. Mm-hmm. The fact that we were stuck in our homes, and we realized, you know what, there is a, a trail system outdoors where we can be you know, six feet apart from each other, or together with your your housemates. And we can go out and do something, right, as opposed to being inside all the time. And we said, you know what, Um, the Bruce Trail, it literally goes through our backyard. Uh But we've never seen aspects of it that run through the Hamilton Wentworth uh, region. And you know what, that's one of the most beautiful parts of that trail. The Iroquois section that goes through Hamilton, Dundas, Ancaster, the most beautiful waterfalls you've seen mm. anywhere around mm. here. Um, particularly uh, great to look at in the springtime when there's water flowing, right? Because in the summer, most of them are dried up. But um, but at any rate, so my my wife and I, Amanda, we decided to Why don't we do this thing from end to end, because we've been at the other end, we've been at Tobermory, it's beautiful up there on that Bruce Peninsula, and we've been in Niagara because we live very close to it. So we said, why don't we fill all the little gaps in between and start this trek. Um, So we did that, uh, I think it was two years ago we started at the terminus in uh, Queenston Heights in Niagara. And we just started realizing, wow, there is just a diversity of nature around us. There's a beauty to the nature that we didn't know we had in our backyard. And this is a thin strip of green land that connects us down here in Niagara, all the way up to the Bruce Peninsula. And unfortunately, as as we've been going through the hiking, you know, and you hear about the things that are going on in provincial government, about developing land in the green zone, you, you get to wondering how long are we going to be able to enjoy this strip of land from Niagara to the Bruce Peninsula? But we've seen a lot of nature along the way, a lot of diverse things like mushrooms, flowering plants, uh, animals as well. But more importantly, what we've done is we've connected more with one another, right? Uh, It's too easy when you are at home sitting on a couch or out in your backyard but too easy to get onto that technology and even though you're in the same room you're not really together are you right so being out there hiking exploring together uh really helps to make connections right between people so i feel it's it's really helped amanda and i to come together even closer now. I mean, we've been married for more than 25 years now. It's hard to say that. Wow. Only 25 years. Wow. But yes. um, And it has helped to cement our connections and our, you know, our shared love for things like the outdoors, exercise, right? There's a lot more I could say about it. But we are we are more than one third of the way through the journey. It's about nine hundred kilometers plus, mm-hmm. right? We're past the three hundred and fifty k part. Oh, wow. We've been documenting our our journey oh. on a on a what is it called? It's a it's a blog post. So you can oh. actually you can look us up if you'd like to <laughs> and see some of the, We we largely did this you know documentation through photo in descriptions through a little blog. It, it, it was mostly for us to say, you know what, there were some really beautiful sections along the way, we want to be able to somewhere down the road say hey do you remember that waterfall where was it, we oh, can look nice. it up, and we can go back there and revisit it right. Yeah. Especially in different times, or different seasons right, because I, I have to tell you, the trail does have its own like character, and it mm-hmm. changes with the seasons from fall, you know, all the way through the summer and then back into the winter, it completely changes. The same trail, completely different demeanor, character, uh, you know, difficulty depending on the season when you visit it.
0: Incredible. Now, Peter, if you feel comfortable sharing the webpage to your blog, I would oh, love yeah. to include that in our episode notes that we can post with this episode
1: yeah yeah not a problem. I, I believe our blog post if you go into a Google search and you type in Amanda and Peters Bruce Trail Trek you will find all the blog posts we have there and I think we're on hike number 51 or 52 now Wow
0: amazing so Amanda and Peters Bruce Trail Trail Trek yep okay perfect thank you so much Peter. It's been really inspiring to talk with you. And I am inspired to start a new academic year in teaching. And you've also inspired me to check out that Bruce Trail and to <laughs> connect with others through activities like hiking. So thank you. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Maniapanda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.